0: I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 19th, 2016. Coming up, an interview in the studio with Jessica Metcalf, an evolutionary biologist who is fascinated by rapid changes in biodiversity, host microbe, coevolution, and the health implications of recent advances in the study of the human microbiome. She will talk to us about some recent work using some species of the microbiome to provide an accurate and replicable post-mortem interval. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Mild traumatic brain injuries, that is TBIs, are the signature injury of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and can result from explosion related shock waves. How the blasts cause persistent brain injuries in animals or humans is not understood. Last week, a team from the VA Puget Sound Healthcare System reported in the journal Science and Translational Medicine that the cerebellum, a brain structure important for integrating sensory information and movement, is especially vulnerable to injury in blast-exposed mice, producing small lesions in the blood-brain barrier. Breakdown of this barrier may be an important factor driving long-term brain damage. This same brain area is also found to be abnormal in brain scan images from blast-exposed combat vets. Together, these results indicate that the cerebellum is vulnerable to repetitive impacts that produce TBIs in both mice and humans. In humans, the cerebellum is located at the base of the brain just above the neck. These findings suggest the possibility of protect, uh, developing protective devices that may reduce the frequency of TBIs. Tonight, join Joseph Sertich, Ph.D., Curator of Vertebrate Paleontology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, from 7 to 8.30, as he discusses the Cretaceous West, dinosaur distribution and movement on the lost landmass of Laramidia the dinosaurs of the Western interior of America, including where we live here in Colorado, are among the best known and diverse assemblages in the world, with over a century of discovery and exploration from Alaska to Mexico. However, new discoveries from Southern Utah and New Mexico by the Denver Museum of Nature and Science-led Laramidia Project have cast new light onto assumptions of dinosaur distributions and movements approximately 75 million years ago, revealing unexpected patterns. You can find out more at the Denver Science Museum website. The talk starts tonight at 7. Cold temperatures have gripped Boulder recently, but elsewhere the effects of global warming are being seen. Hurricane Alex made history as the first January hurricane since 1938. The storm has peak winds of 85 miles per hour, just about 5 miles per hour shy of 1955's Hurricane Alice, the strongest on record for this month. Alex has built over waters that are usually not warm enough to support hurricane activity. However, the contrast between the surface waters and unusually cold air at high altitudes has created a volatile corridor of air, fostering the storm's development. The waters in which Alex has developed are warmer than normal, building the storm according to weather underground. While Alex spun up in the Atlantic, another highly unusual tropical weather system for this time of year was setting milestones in the Pacific. A storm named Pali reached hurricane intensity in the Central Pacific earlier this week, becoming the earliest hurricane on record to form in that region. And finally, we've all heard of the benefits of yoga and meditation, but here's a new twist. Prenatal and postpartum depression remains a vexing public health issue. Between 15 and 30% of women experience prenatal and postpartum depression. Yet standard treatments don't always work because most women don't want to take antidepressants during or after pregnancy. A study led by researchers at the University of Colorado in Boulder worked with pregnant women with histories of depression. Researchers randomly assigned 43 pregnant women to mindfulness-based therapy. Another 43 were assigned to more conventional treatments. At-risk women experienced depression during pregnancy and after they gave birth in 18% of cases when treated with mindfulness techniques such as yoga, but the rate was 50% in those treated with more conventional methods. Bottom line, pregnant and postpartum women at risk of depression are less likely to suffer that depression when they meditate or get in a yoga pose than when they are treated with psychotherapy or antidepressants. This study was published last month in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. On the line with me is Jessica Metcalf, an evolutionary biologist from CU Boulder, who studies bacteria, specifically the microbiome. One of her research interests is using molecular biology to address basic hypotheses about the role of microbes in corpse decomposition. The time since death, or post-mortem interval, also known as the PMI, is important for criminal investigations because it can lead to the identification of the deceased and validate alibis. PMI is critical to forensic science and also pop culture TV shows like Bones and CSI. Recently, Jessica co-authored a paper published in Science describing how various species of the microbiome can be used to accurately and repeatedly determine the post-mortem interval. Good morning, Jessica, and welcome to the program. Good morning, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about this. I think that re- the listeners are really excited to hear about the microbiome. So maybe you can start just by refreshing our collective memory about what the microbiome is.
1: Sure. So the microbiome um, are the microbes in their genes, and it's the study of, of that ecology. And so when we, think of, when we hear the buzzword microbiome, we usually think of the human microbiome. And that's because the human microbiome is really important for our health. So um, some of this, the, the common stats that we often hear are that many of our cells in our bodies or genes in our bodies are actually microbial. And actually uh, the, that stat that was just updated. It used to be that we would say nine, 9 out of every 10 cells in our body is microbial, but it's about, it's about 1 out of every 2 cells in our body. Um, are actually microbial, and these are mostly bacterial, and they're mostly found in our gastrointestinal tract. Um, And so we also, the important thing is that those microbial cells provide us with a lot of unique genes. So actually 99% of the unique genes in your body are from bacteria, and this allows you to do things like synthesize vitamins And metabolize certain types of nutrients that your genome can't do, but can't, um, won't allow you to do just by itself. So we we sort of harvest and utilize bacterial genes to do things for us. And so that's why microbes are really important for human health. Um, But microbes are everywhere, and they're important for many, many processes. And for the research project that we're going to talk about today, we're talking about how microbes are important in decomposition. And decomposition is one of the most important processes, ecosystem processes on Earth, right? Because if we didn't have microbes decomposing things, we would just be buried under a bunch of leaves and 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 trees and, and dead things.
0: Yeah, pretty horrifying um, thought without <laughs> decomposition, what the world would be like. And no nutrients for the rest of us either.
1: Right. So, so microbes are just critical uh, for, for everything on Earth. And so um, because they're so important in decomposition, this was an opportunity for us to both study the role of microbes in vertebrate decomposition, which really we don't know that much about. Um, most of the sort of ecological studies in de- for decomposition have been about leaf litter because that's the bulk of the organic material on Earth that um, needs to be decomposed is actually leaves. Um, and so a much smaller but also important uh, you know, pool of nutrients that has to decompose our, our vertebrate bodies. Um, and so that's, that's one of the reasons we study this. And then it's also um, very interesting for uh, forensic science and has a lot of potential for forensic science. And isn't
0: I'm sorry, is it our Mm -hmm. microbiome that initiates that process of decomposition on our bodies when we die, or is it external microbes?
1: So that's a really, really good question. And that's one of the things that we um, went after in this paper that we recently published. And what we found is that the microbes that are important, so the the short answer is both. Um, The microbes that are important and become really abundant during decomposition are super super rare or low abundant before decomposition starts, but they're kind of ubiquitous. So we found them in a lot of different sample types, and by that I mean um, in our in our on, in our study, we found some percentage you know thirty percent of the microbes we could find. It's very low abundant in skin samples. Um, a little bit higher percentage in soil samples, some in abdominal samples, and so there was no clear picture of you know all the microbes came from soil or all the microbes came from the skin. It looks like they they kind of assemble from various different uh, sample types, which you know is probably kind of there are these um, these sort of Ubiquitous opportunistic um, organisms that you know are probably in the air on the soil on our skin, some of them are also inside of us, and then once we die, they're able to just take advantage of this huge pool of nutrients and and you know kind of go go bonkers
0: and it makes sense that they'd be everywhere, but while we're still alive the the vast bulk of the microbiome that our... are um, collaborators in a way would keep those other guys in check because our good guys don't want those opportunists coming in and taking their resources.
1: Right, exactly. And that's one of the key things that changes at death, right? Our immune systems turn off and temperature changes and other things. But but that is exactly right. Like suddenly we don't have this, this immune system keeping everything in check. So um, we certainly get huge changes. You know, one of the things that we study. Um, and we study this one in, in, in mouse models because it's it's it allows us um, more uh, repli- like we can have many more replicates. Is the is the abdominal cavity and what happens in there during death? And so, one of the first key stages in in death is bloat, and that. That is your internal microbes really changing in abundance, and some of the ones that are more important in decomposition becoming um, more abundant over time. And so, and so, we certainly do see a huge and very quick change um, in your internal microbes um, right after death, and then you'll have a rupture event, and that sort of where there's a hole somewhere. Um, And and it can be through one of your like the oral cavity or it can be um, a punctured hole uh, becomes allows those external microbes inside. And that's where um, then you get really, really rapid decomposition.
0: And did you find that kind of across the board in mice and humans that maybe species A would be the first one to predominate and then they would fall off and species B would come along? Or is that a little bit more variable?
1: So that, that's a really good question. And overall, we see this very predictable wave of different microbes that occur during decomposition. They're very similar, um, regardless of whether it's in a mouse model experiment in a lab at U Boulder or whether it's in an experiment at one of our. Um, collaborators, anthropological research facilities where they actually have hum- human donors and it's outdoors and it's in a much more realistic scenario, we still see very similar groups of microbes that emerge at very similar time points. Um, and that's what allows us to build this clock that we can calibrate so it's useful for forensic science. Um, it's useful for estimating the time since death. And so Sort of what we've kind of alluded to a little bit here is, you know, what we did in this paper is we've, we had a very controlled study with mice that allowed us to have a, a really large sample size. And then we also worked with um, what what are often referred to as body farms, which are anthropological research facilities that are willed body donation programs for forensic science. And we work with one in Huntsville, Texas, at Sam Houston State University, where um, people choose to donate their, their body for forensic science. And in this paper, we looked at two, two bodies decomposing during starting in the winter and two in the spring. And so we were able to compare across all those different experiments and look at the clock and see these similarities.
0: And this idea of the clock is fascinating. I want to come back to that, but we'll take a quick station break first. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett, talking with Jessica Metcalf about her studies with the microbiome. One of her interests is establishing the time since death or postmortem interval, which can be very challenging as there are few tools available to do so. She and her fellow researchers have advanced forensic science by identifying predictable changes in microbiome species after death. So let's go back to this clock idea and tell us a little bit about how environmental conditions and individual variation might affect that.
1: Right. So that's one of the things that we're still studying. And so um, before the break, what I was kind of saying is we see similar groups of microbes emerge at different times. We don't see um, we don't see the exact same community or group of microbes, but it's similar enough and has enough key species that allows us to build a model, which we, you know, we describe as a clock, because I think that's a very good metaphor for our our model. Um, But it it is of this idea of, you know, in a simplified version that we're looking for species A as an indicator of X time, but it's much more complex than that because there's thousands of species. And one of the really cool things about this research is that, um, you know, we looked at Bacteria, which is kind of commonly what we look at to study the human microbiome, but we also looked at microscopic eukaryotes. So, you, so of the three domains of life, bacteria, archaea, and eukarya, um, we are in eukarya, but most of the lineages in eukarya are actually microscopic, and some of these are things that we're familiar with um, when we call them parasites. Uh, so In in environmental microbiology, and there are some that are very important for decomposition. This includes, for example, nematodes, and those are microscopic worms. And we found that they're also very important for our clock. We see a distinct bloom of a certain group of of nematodes at a particular kind of stage in decomposition. Um, And we also see this kind of clock-like nature and the fungal, fungal groups that emerge during decomposition. So fungi are also a very important part of this process. So that's what makes it so cool to study, you know, from an ecology point of view, is it's, it's, it's such a diverse group of, of organisms kind of spanning all the domains of life.
0: And very um, powerful to use the information from so many diverse sources. exactly. And did you, would you take samples and then do DNA sequencing or did you have gene chips that you developed to identify which populations were present at which times?
1: Uh, great question. So what we did is, um, so in our experiments, whether it was the mouse or the humans, we took swabs of the skin um, or, or we took swabs or a small amount of soil. Um, and in the mouse experiment, we also were able to... Um, take samples from the abdominal cavity, um, and we extract DNA. So all the DNA in that sample we extract. And so most of the DNA is going to be microbial, and so we use DNA sequencing technology to to look at particular markers that are really good for identifying the species or strains that are in that pool of of DNA that we we were able to get from the sample. And so what that gives us is sort of the picture of, you know, who's there and at what abundance are the different species. So we get this kind of view of their kind of relative abundance of the different groups of organisms and species of organisms that are there. And And that's what we use for our clock.
0: And what kind of time interval would you be doing the samples on, like every 10 minutes every hour
1: yeah so we for for these experiments it was more it was the time frames of daily or every other day every three days it was more that type of time frame and we looked in our in our studies went um you know about 80 to 100 days um so we looked over several months and we found that our most um, we had more frequent sampling the first uh the first Three weeks to months, um, and that's when we really found that we had a very, very high resolution or um, you know very informative microbial clock during that time because that's when really decomposition has happened very quickly, and we're having these huge just just changes in the in the microbial the groups of microbes the waves of microbes are just you know changing so fast that they make a great clock in that in that interval.
0: So it seems like this would be the kind of technology that would be really interesting and valuable to criminal investigations. Have you been contacted by any of these organizations?
1: Right. So the, the major funding agency for our work is the National Institutes of Justice or Department of Justice. And so we are, because of that, you know, we we do automatically have a connection. And, and some of our collaborators on these projects are forensic scientists um, and we, we haven't this this work has not been used in in a criminal case yet, but we do hope that it will happen soon. And so we're sort of working, um, doing things that are important to be to to have your science used in the criminal justice system, such as we're developing a textbook right now on microbial forensics. We're publishing and peer reviewed. Um, journals, such as our recent publication. And so there's a certain sort of process that has to happen before this. This is first used in a criminal case, and then some brave lawyer has to actually try to use (laughs) it.
0: (laughs) So I imagine that someday in the not-too-distant future, hopefully, um, when a body is found, the first responders could take skin samples and soil samples and maybe other kinds of tissue samples and then send them off to some lab and get a pretty precise idea of just how long ago that person died.
1: Right, and the idea that, so one of the, the things that's really attractive about this, it is very simple, you just swab, take a swab, swab the skin or swab the soil or both. You know, and the idea is that this doesn't replace existing Tools, although there really aren't that many tools, once a body starts decomposing, um, but you know it can be used in in like in tandem with other tools just to help narrow that window of uncertainty. So maybe you can look at the insects, um, and that tells you it's within this one week. You can look at the last text and say, okay, this person was alive until you know this day of that week, and then maybe the microbes can help further. Um, narrow that window and say, "Okay, so now we 're down to these two days, and then that helps possibly validate an alibi or um, in the cases of really far along decomposition it can ha- actually help identify the body um, as you know the person as well and so and so those are the those are the types of things that you know I think this could be really useful for, but we 're still at the you know we're still doing research on this so We we just had another um, project funded, and now we're working with three anthropological research facilities, and we'll um, study decomposition over four seasons across these three facilities, and that will really help us calibrate our clock um, to take into account temperature. We usually, when we go across seasons, we use a temperature-based clock. Um, so instead of days, we use a accumulated degree day. So it's a temperature based day, sure. um, and so that helps us. This this upcoming project will really help us um, be able to calibrate our clock across seasons and geography. Our recent paper suggests that we'll still see similar types of microbes, and that the clock is fairly robust at least across winter and spring. But this will help us really really get that data.
0: Well, I hope we can catch up with you in the future then and find out about your further results. Thank you so much for talking to us this morning.
1: Thanks for having me. This Mm -hmm. was great.
0: You're welcome. Goodbye. Goodbye. That was Jessica Metcalf, who gave a fascinating description of how molecular biology can assist forensic science in determining time after death using the ubiquitous and mysterious microbiome. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Harley Poe. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 Four four seven nine nine one one. For how on earth the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.